we have to counterbalance, you know, that cliche view, you know, working in cyber means you are in your hoodie in the basement, right? This is the good profession, as good as lawyer or doctor and very well paid. And you have to hook those students, giving him, you know, exciting experiential things. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategist. I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. All right, Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode? Rob, our guest today is Dr. Victor Perhowski, who is the lead program director for the National Science Foundation's CyberCorps Scholarship for Service Program. He's also a program officer in the Secure and Trustworthy Cyberspace Program, supports training-based workforce development for advanced cyber infrastructure, and supports the cyber infrastructure for sustained scientific innovation program. He's Victor's very busy, but today we're just going to focus on the CyberCorps SFS program and how it helps address the growing gap and the supply and demand of cybersecurity workers in the United States, and specifically in the U.S. federal government. Victor, it's great to have you with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to add uh, about your background for our listeners? Thank you, Stan, and and my pleasure uh, participating in your podcast. Maybe just a couple of things. Uh, I'm originally from Poland, came here just before the Berlin Wall fell down in 1989, mm and uh, spent a long time at the University of Wisconsin, started with the government about 15 years ago and been leading efforts on uh, uh, cybersecurity education workforce uh, at the National Science Foundation. Uh, also work internationally, specifically, I was a cybersecurity fellow in the U.S. Embassy in Latvia, working with Baltic countries and Scandinavia. One of the things obviously we'll be talking about today is just kind of what we're seeing out there and how you're helping with the cybersecurity workforce in general. You know, and in previous episodes, we, we've had this kind of topic of discussion many times. Uh, an example of that was Marion Merritt, the deputy director at, uh, at NICE, and she was actually sharing with us, you know, some recruiting capabilities and the website that you're familiar with, I'm sure, called CyberSeek. And when you look at CyberSeek, over 45,000 cyber openings in the public sector within the U.S. alone. If we kind of flip that over to you and some of the things you're doing with the CyberCorp SFS program, you know, as it was established to help respond to some of these challenges in recruiting and retaining cyber talent, specifically to the government per se, maybe take us through and help us understand more of a summation of the program, the history, kind of where it came from, all the way to kind of the point in time where you're at today with it. You're absolutely right. I didn't know it's already 45. I kind of like always say 40, uh, but it still means that roughly one in three positions in, in a, a federal government is unfilled. Uh, we have 700,000 uh, need nationwide outside, you know, just a public sector. So that's, this is um, a, a very, very huge challenge on the top of um, other areas that experience the shortage. So the program was established very early. Uh, I would say probably 10 years before any other country even thought about uh, boosting cybersecurity uh, workforce. So that, that goes back to 1997. Uh, that was the efforts uh, related to Commission on Critical Infrastructure Protection. And at that time, two 
big initiatives started. One was Center of Academic Excellence uh, at National Security Agency. And then the other one was uh, CyberCore Scholarship for Service at the National Science Foundation. Uh, so we've been running this actively, uh, supporting universities and, and, and students um, since 2000. So it's 20, will be 23 years uh, this year. Uh, the program originally was established as a collaboration between NSF and the Office of Personal Management. But after Department of Homeland Security was established some time around 2003, that it joined us. So this is really currently three agencies working uh, together. So Victor, my understanding is, and granted it's a limited understanding of the CyberCore SFS program, is it has two tracks. One that provides funding to universities to award scholarships, and then another track to help actually increase the capacity of our U.S. higher education to produce cybersecurity professionals. That's correct. So our position, even if uh, we are charged to run a scholarship program, our position as, as National Science Foundation was we cannot have a high-quality scholarship program if we do not invest in faculty, curricula, mm -hmm. training of faculty, extracurricular activities, support competition, support transition from cutting research to education, and so on and so on. So you're absolutely right. I would say about 20% of our funds go to support that, what we call capacity building in the United States education enterprise. It, it, it starts at K-12. We invest in K-12, uh, starting with middle school and high school, joint effort with National Science, uh, National Security Agency and, and FBI is called Gen Cyber. It's like the next generation cyber stars. It's, it's uh, summer activities, uh, about 150 camps each summer, one week long to, to essentially expose students in K-12 to cybersecurity, to profession. They get a taste for it, right? They look at that as possibly being a career path. Essentially, we have to counterbalance, you know, that cliche view, you know, working in cyber means you are in your hoodie in the basement, right? We have to sell it <laughs> to parents. This is the good profession, as good as lawyer or doctor and, and very well paid and, and with, with the needs, right? And you have to hook those students, giving them, you know, exciting experiential things, little hacking, maybe, you know, ethical hacking, let's say this way, maybe I will... I will try to hack the system and read what is pressure in your in in your tire in your car, or maybe <laughs> I will try to get control of your little drone, or something like this. You know, everything in that ethical way. You know, supported obviously. <laughs> Don't do this in a non-ethical way, but we expose them to those experiential activities, and then we go through uh, community colleges. We have a huge investment in community colleges, going through four-year school, graduate students. Uh, doctoral students, going all the way, what we call generally K to gray, you know, going to professional development of, of people uh, that are already in the workforce or going to the older population with security awareness, right? So our students might go with outreach to some residential 
areas hmm. and and help do programs and libraries the, and places exactly like that. exactly think about the population that didn't grow up with iphones in their hand right, right. they need help to understand this digital world and so that's that's the capacity building and and the scholarship is easier to describe the scholarship part is essentially a fantastic scholarship package but has strings attached so essentially we offer students up to three years fantastic fantastic package that means we cover all tuition if it's twenty thousand, we cover a year if it's sixty thousand a year we cover it absolutely 100 percent. we provide in the range of 27 to thirty-seven thousand cash every year depending on the student status undergraduate versus graduate but money for professional development and and uh in exchange of this the students are required to work in the cybersecurity mission of the government agency for as long as they receive the support. That means two-year support, you work two, two years, you can leave. Three-year support, you work three years, you can leave. Roughly how many students are you seeing actively at this point in time within the program and kind of walk people through what that process is of being accepted into the actual program itself? To date, we accepted somewhere around 5,500 students. We have about close to a thousand them on the on an active scholarship. We graduate around 400 students a year. The way we work is decentralized. It means we don't have a central place at the government agency apply here for scholarship. Rather, we have a competition of universities. That means every year, say 50 universities will submit application to us and say, I would like to be one of your cybercore schools. We select some of those schools and those schools will receive multi-million, multi-year funding to recruit students, to run them through the proper curriculum, to be sure they are connected to agencies, choose the students who can obtain security clearances and so on and so on. So the students do not apply to the federal government, the student applied to one of the 98 SFS schools. So there are 98 participating universities in the program right now. Do you track which ones you know are most successful as far as getting scholarship students through? If I can mention maybe top five, mm-hmm. that will be uh, Dakota State University, very tiny university in South Dakota, 3,000 students total but 600 of them major in cyber operations. It's just, wow, you know, a, a small school fo- focusing, right, exactly, focusing just on, on cyber operations, high-level cybersecurity, right? It's, these are like really advanced skills used in a, not just defensive side, but offensive sides. University of Tulsa, that was consistently at the top, and then Florida State University, uh, California State, San Bernardino, and Naval Postgraduate School. And again, every year we add new schools, right? So this this year, for example, in January, we added nine new schools. So we are now present, I believe, in 39 states plus Puerto Rico and D.C. Which is an indicator of, I guess, the expansion of the capacity too, because these, you know, number of universities, whether they actually get graduates through that program, your program or not, hopefully they have the faculty to help with the education and cybersecurity area. So, so as they've gone through now the program and they're looking to see where they can find opportunities to work within the government, what are some of the examples of kind of in the past they can take and, and how do they find those different opportunities within the federal government? 
to date, we had, you know, close to 5,500 students. So we created, obviously, a supporting structure in the program, and that includes something what we call job fairs. We have a virtual event and we have uh, face-to-face events. These are closed events. We usually get about 100 booths, uh, maybe 300 hiring officials in big place. Uh, in addition to this, many schools develop over the years specific connections to some agencies. Like, for example, if I graduate over the last 10 years, you know, whatever, 30 students, and those students are in some agencies, they will natural connection for me. They will come to my, my university for recruitment. They will establish way before our job fairs. You know, some students already are connected. The one challenge is that this requires two things. Students have to be U.S. citizens or permanent residents, and that narrows our selection, right? In many computer science classes, especially if you go to graduate level, you have very high percentage of non-citizens, 70, 80, 90% even in doctoral programs, right? So our selection narrows. And the second one is this a uh, little invasive to your privacy because most of those positions will require high level clearances. Some mm. of them like NSA or CIA will require also polygraph. But the one common mistake I think is people saying, you know, if I use maybe some not fully legal substance in high school, I can never get clearance. This is absolute, absolute fallacy. The, the main thing is you don't lie. You tell you put everything on the table. And uh, we had cases, I remember one case that I saw that students tried every possible substance in high school and still obtained clearance. My understanding is that while you're focusing on trying to fill positions in the U.S. federal government, your job fair is open for state and local as well and tribes? That is correct. We have little restrictions because the program's intention was to create a support for federal government. Over the years, that position a little softened because, you know, the system is as strong as the weakest link. Mm. And and obviously, we are allowed to send to state, local, tribal government. However, we, the statute, the law, tells us at least 70% of students have to go to the executive branch, not even federal government, executive branch of federal government. And then not more than 20% can go to like catch all uh, what will be state, local, tribal, territorial, also non-executive branch. It might be supporting Supreme Court or supporting the sergeant at arms, right? These are non-executive branches. So again, right, like right. The over 20, the legislative branch, right? Exactly, 20% bucket. But also Federal government is very complicated. Actually, every December, there is a manual issued. What is a federal government? You have semi-quasi-government corporations. You have interstate agencies. Yeah, you mentioned that. I mean, I used to work at Fannie Mae, and you consider them exactly. a quasi-government quasi yep. agency, even if they think of themselves as being more private sector. Guess what? They're under the conservatorship. Um, yep. And FDIC, FDIC is another one. Yeah, um, even, even Feds, Federal Reserve even, too. Which of these agencies over time do you think has really consumed the most graduates out of the program? About 740 students of our 4,500 that we graduated today, 
went to national security agency. Mm. This is the what we call signal <laughs> intelligence, and in modern times is you know in the old days was like radio signals or any other signals, right? But these days signals on the internet wire are important signals, right? So much. so a yeah. lot a lot of, a lot of those students go to NSA. Other you know top recruiting agency are related to DOD, Department of Navy. Then we have Department of Energy, uh, Department of the Army, Homeland Security, Air Force, uh, and then Department of Justice means you know FBI obviously and CIA. Uh, that's that's probably the the most students go to those agencies. But we send them to hundred. I think last time I count in my spreadsheet, hundred thirty four lines. That's explains you how many of those department agencies and different kind like structures that you never heard of. For example, there is one agency that consists of seven people, but was established <laughs> by Congress in 1960s. They had hired one student because they need one and it's theirs, right? Now let's double click on that a little bit further. When you look at the actual students, right? The requirement is that they're going to work for the government for a kind of, here's the time you were educated for on our diamond essence. And now we expect that time back. How about tracking to see how long they actually stay moving forward, whether it's federal, whether it's state and local, it doesn't matter. Like, have you looked at those type of metrics as well to see? Up to fulfilling their obligation, we have 100% responses and we know exactly what's happening. After the obligation, once we mark them in, you know, OPM database, you fulfill your obligation, we still survey them for eight additional years, but the response somehow declines, understandably, right? Maybe 80% of people respond one year after a clear with all the obligation. By the end of the eight years, maybe only 40%. So it's not a complete data, but definitely uh, what we are getting from those surveys is that students don't quit government the day after they fulfill the obligation. They, they stay longer, sometimes much longer. So about 70 I think 2% of students stay with the government. You know, going back to the beginning of our, of our episode here, where we're talking about the numbers, you know, we still have like 45,000 or so openings in the U S government for cybersecurity kind of positions. You've made a, a big impact with your program starting in 2000. You've gotten thousands of people through and graduated through this program. That's great. But the numbers are are still relatively small based on compared to the need. If if you receive more funding, you know, would that by itself help you scale up your program and get more graduates? The short answer is obviously there is funding is always positive, you know, the proportionally uh, related to uh, number of students. But the answer is not that simple. And so let me just maybe put two comments here. The first one. If we put somewhere at a university 5 million grant, that's what happened with Dakota State University back in 2010. A tiny university got 5 million grant and then decided cyber is our future. So that means the impact of our dollar is not only on those students that we recruit on the scholarship because that number is limited, but that university now create the major in cyber operations, hire faculty, create courses. So there are dozens and dozens and dozens other students sitting in the classroom 
mm-hmm. addition to maybe 10 or 12 that are on the scholarship. So this is, I think, a big impact that puts cybersecurity as attractive area to the dean or the provost, you know, the university administration, state, government, and so on. Like we don't have any school currently in Wyoming or Utah or Montana. You know, additional funding uh, eventually will, will create school there also will bring that attention, right? And and, and, and uh, cybersecurity as attractive area in that state or that university. The second thing is the biggest bottleneck that I perceive for last at least three years is the shortage of faculty. Based on the Computer Research Association in North America, we have about 140 doctoral students graduating every year, but only about 14 of them uh, end up as university professors. Very limited. It's, it, it will be barely to replace retirement. Right. But if you think mm-hmm. about expanding this and creating you know, new schools, new programs, new states, 14 is a very, very small number. So that's a big challenge currently. I think, you know, you've shared a lot. And I think, again, thank you from us to you and putting together the program and the energy and the passion behind it. We know it's a critical need. Uh, This helps tremendously. And I think getting the word out, hopefully this is another kind of form of of sharing with people who are interested in getting to cyber, that this opportunity also exists. And then the term that you used, I love it, K to gray. And I think that's the way you have to think about cyber in general, right? As early as possible, start kind of thinking about and understanding the implications of cybersecurity. Um, but also there's the other generations that we have to consider, you know, I know for myself many times having the conversations with parents and what they're dealing with and kind of, do I click on this? Do I not? Right. So, so again, very holistic based approach. Thank you for coming on and sharing. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And if anybody's interested, sfs.opm.gov for prospective students. Thanks again for all your work in this area. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. Hello, I'm Ben, producer of the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. And before you go, I'd just like to let you know that we've got a huge back catalogue of great episodes that you can get your teeth into. For example, similar to the theme of this week's show, Back in October 2021, we had Marion Merritt, Deputy Director for the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The episode addressed the talent shortage gap, explored the root causes of this, and also suggested how to solve the problem. All of that inside of 20 minutes, which is pretty impressive. Here's a clip. An entry-level job, by definition, should not require three years of experience. And we just don't have enough. And if you look at the CyberSeq data, you can really get a visualization. Most jobs out there require five to 10 years of experience. So there is a conundrum here. Let's say you have four employees and one of them is leaving every year, which is very common. If you're not thinking about bringing young people in or career entrants or career switchers in um, on a regular basis, you're just not going to continue to have bench strength on your cyber team. So that's a concern. It's well worth checking it out. It's episode 20 in the Reimagining Cyber series. And if you listen via Apple Podcasts, do let us know what you think by leaving a rating and a comment.